Welcome to Career Chin Wax for the 21st Century. My name is Catherine Cunningham and I'm a career specialist who's worked with thousands of people by now. And so what I'm trying to do in this podcast series is tap into things that I've learned, things that I've come to understand over the years to help people better manage their careers and be happier at work. I'm taking a detour from the normal schedule. I have been doing a standard podcast and then I've been doing an MBTI podcast where we look at personality preferences and then I've been doing a short, sharp and shiny podcast. And I've been rotating through that way. But I've had a, a catastrophic upper leg break, which has really affected my mobility and my ability to get things done. And it's easier for me to do MBTI at the moment because I've done a lot of preparation work. They're all ready to go. So I'm taking a bit of a detour and I'm doing at least two MBTI on the roll and maybe a couple more. We'll wait and see. So I want to talk first about MBTI. I love it. It's my favorite work. And if I'm if I'm working with somebody who's not happy at work and they only have one hour to work with me, I always recommend MBTI because if you can uncover your hardwired preferences rather than learned behavior or learned skills, you can use that information to decide what sort of work to do. So, for example, when I was at the bank, my spreadsheets were basically full of errors because I don't have natural attention to detail. Now, since then, I've learned attention to detail. Anybody who works with me on resumes gets pretty amazed at everything I spot. So, yes, I can have attention to detail, but do I want to be in a job all day where I have to absolutely focus on the task at hand and notice every slight little issue? I can tell you no. So where does it come from? I want to give you a little bit of theory before we start. I'm going to look at the four separate letters, M-B-T-I, one at a time, and that will help you understand it. And I'm going to start at the back. So the I stands for indicator. M-B-T-I is not a test. So if you go online and do one of those free versions, it's pretty well a waste of time. It is only an indicator. As an accredited practitioner, I'm bound by the ethics to only ever deliver the assessment with the debrief. Many times people think when they do the assessment that they're, for example, an ENTP, and it's only when you properly explore hardwired preferences in the debrief that they may, for example, come to understand they're not an extrovert, that was learned behaviour, they're actually fundamentally an introvert. So it's an indicator, not a test. The next letter I want to look at is the T. The T stands for type. And there's two issues to look at here. The first one is there are 16 types or 16 possibilities. And that is both the strength and weakness of MBTI. The strength is from a career perspective. When people get their profile, it's like this aha light bulb moment. Often the comment is, I cannot believe this is so right. The level of detail, however, means that they forget their profile. So if I rang somebody up a year later and said, look, what's your profile? They'll probably get it wrong. For our career purposes, that doesn't matter. All we're trying to do with MBTI is stop for a minute in time, have a think about hardwired preferences, and use that information to make career decisions. And the other aspect of type is it's not tray or trait theory. So many instruments will measure you on a continuum. They'll say you're more like this than a particular cohort or less like this. 
As soon as you do Myers-Briggs, you will notice that it essentially forces you into one camp or the other. Now, Myers-Briggs is based on Carl Jung's work, and apparently Carl Jung said, of course, none of us are 100% introvert or 100% extrovert, for example, but you will notice it essentially wants you to come down on one side versus the other. And the final letters are MB, and they stand for Myers-Briggs. And it was a mother-daughter combination. Catherine Briggs started in the 1920s, building on Carl Jung's work. He knew of her work. She was the first person who wanted to have a mainstream application of his work. So it was really the first time in the world that anybody tried to use personality preferences to help people make career decisions. Because before that, fundamentally, you did what your father did, because of course back then it was mainly men working. You did what your father did or your career choices were extremely class-driven. Okay, let's move on to the label issue. Some people don't like MBTI because they think it labels them. Yes, it obviously does. A useful analogy, however, might be if you think about your favourite room in the house. So my favourite room in the house is my bedroom. I do a lot of work on my bed. It looks out on a garden. I love the connection with the garden. My least favourite room in the house is the laundry. If you look at MBTI, the bedroom is really where you are most comfortable, where you are most in the flow, in the zone. MBTI does not mean you don't change your behaviour. So yes, of course, I go into the laundry. I don't like the laundry. I find it quite soul-destroying, but I go into the laundry. And probably from a work point of view, the example would be me working on resumes and making sure I dot the I's and cross the T's. I don't really want to do that all day but I quite happily and skillfully go into that laundry. At a minimum, somebody talked to me about this a while ago, and it's always stuck with me. At a minimum, you could argue that those 16 types are just a description of behavior preferences, and that that's no different than the DSM-5, which is the uh, American Psychiatric Association's description of mental disorders. If you've ever looked at that, they will have a series of behaviors that they put underneath a label. The label might be, borderline personality disorder, and underneath they'll have a series of behaviours. So you could argue at a minimum MBTI is no different than that. It's a useful catch-all of behaviours that are put under a label. And finally, if you're really sceptical, there's a guy called Dr. Dario Nardi, wonderful guy. I went to one of his conferences in Brisbane a few years ago. And since 2006, he's focused on hands-on brain research. He uses real-time EEG technology to establish the link between the parts of the brain that light up when somebody's in the zone or in the flow doing an activity that matches with their MBTI preferences. If you just Google him, he has lots of information, interesting content and videos. And at the moment, he's producing content for a new book and he's slowly releasing it on LinkedIn. I had a look at his work on ENTP, which is my profile, and I found it even more fascinating. So perhaps explore that as well. Following on from that introduction today, I'd like to talk about INFJs, a very mysterious, wonderful profile. INFJs are organized, conscientious, and firmly connected. They seek clear meaning and understanding. And if you wanted to sum them up in one short phrase, is that they are catalysts for positive change. 
They have a visionary grasp of human relationships and possibilities which can elevate and inspire others. What a wonderful profile. Let's break down those four letters. INFJ stands for introverted, intuitive, feeling and judging. Introverted indicates a person who is energised by time alone. Intuitive indicates a person who focuses on ideas and concepts rather than facts and details. Feelers are those who make decisions based on feelings and values rather than analysis and reason. And judging people are those who prefer to be planned and organised rather than spontaneous and flexible. At their core, INFJs possess a gift for intuitively understanding complex meanings and human relationships. They empathetically understand the feelings and motivations of people before they themselves are aware of them. They combine this understanding with the drive and organisation to implement global plans for enhancing people's lives. Statistically, they're one of the rarest types. They're only 2% of the general population, 2% of women, 1% of men. They're amongst the highest of all types in college GPA and amongst the most likely to stay in college. They're the most likely of all types to cope with stress by seeing a therapist. They're the highest of all types in marital dissatisfaction, and their personal values include spirituality, learning, and community service. No surprises, INFJs are commonly found in careers in religion, counselling, teaching, and the arts. In the workplace, INFJs are likely to be creative, visionary, and insightful. They're symbolic, conceptual, and metaphorical. They're idealist, complex, and deep. They are sensitive, empathetic, and compassionate. And they are deeply committed to their values. If we look at famous INFJs, you've got Gandhi, Eleanor Roosevelt, Emily Bronte, Jane Goodall, Carl Jung, Florence Nightingale, Jimmy Carter, and Edward Snowden. Now, of course, I'm interested in where each type finds career satisfaction, and I'm going to look into information that comes from a wonderful book called Do What You Are by Teager and Barron. In each chapter on each profile, they highlight the 10 key drivers that each type needs to find career satisfaction. I'm not going to mention all 10. I'm just going to select five. To an INFJ, career satisfaction means doing work that lets them create new ideas for a variety of problems, mostly those that help others to grow and develop. The work needs to let them produce a product or service that they believe in and are proud of. The work needs to be done in a tension-free environment where their ideas are respected and they are psychologically supported. The work needs to give them time to formulate their ideas so that they are thoroughly prepared. And finally, the work needs to be in harmony with their values and allow them personal and professional integrity. What makes INFJs attractive to other people? Now, there's a group of Myers-Briggs aficionados on Quora, and I must say I'm impressed every time I go onto that group as to how knowledgeable they are. And so this comes from this group. 
INFJs are attracted to others because of their precise listening skills, the richness of their inner world, their ability to emotionally support others, the genuine care and compassion they have for others, their devotion to making the world a better place for all, even at their own expense, their creativity, and their calm, stable, gentle attentiveness. I want to talk now about what INFJs are like in the workplace. And there's another wonderful book called Working Together by Isaacson and Behrens. It's very detailed and it looks at the behavior of each type in the workplace or the preferences of each type in the workplace and then the implications of that. Now, it's very detailed. I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to select one or two pieces of information from each of the main sections in that book. So when it comes to management style of an INFJ, it's one of striving for and supporting the highest and best use of human potential. There is an authenticity in caring for people, and they are likely to lead quietly and by example. It's important to understand that an INFJ needs to work for a cause, a leader and a purpose, if possible, of higher calling rather than just churning out day-to-day work. INFJs typically value human relationships so strongly that they instinctively and naturally become concerned with personal as well as interpersonal problems of their co-workers, subordinates or superiors. If we look at their values, whatever an INFJ decides to value or favour tends to be carefully selected and as a result often turns out to be both highly personal and very deep. Indeed, the values that an INFJ selects over time tend to become the core of their identity and their whole existence. From an attitude point of view, the basic attitude of INFJ is one of being credulous and idealistic. They tend to see good and potential in everyone and everything. Their enthusiasm is rarely demonstrated with effusive expressions of intense emotions. It is there nonetheless and surfaces with emphatic intenseness when their values and sense of ethics are violated. Moreover, you need to understand that INFJs are people who have a highly developed capacity to understand what seems to motivate people. Someone being non-authentic and attempting to play a role is probably spotted more quickly by an INFJ than any of the other 15 types. If we look at their skills, INFJs are skilled at anything having to do with people, handling them, employing them, deploying them, training them, motivating them, recruiting them and supporting them in achieving their goals and aspirations. The driving force of an INFJ is that they have a high need for empathetic relationships. These relationships must be deep and meaningful for them to satisfy the intense hunger that they feel for rapport. Their energy direction will give them the skills, values and attitudes INFJs typically direct their energy towards bringing forth the highest and fullest potential in everyone they contact. They are in constant search for their own identity and naturally enjoy facilitating others in their search for meaning and purpose. When it comes to their authority orientation, INFJs want the person in charge to be authentic, ethical and good. Authority is not granted by position. It is earned over time through dedication and exemplary behaviour. When it comes to conflict resolution, INFJs prefer harmonious situations and tend to ignore conflicts as long as they possibly can. 
they put great effort in making things run harmoniously. And those attempting to get their point of view across in a non-caring, matter-of-fact fashion are virtually ensured that the INFJ will spare no energy resisting what is being argued. And finally, if we finish with their blind spots and pitfalls, INFJs may focus so much on the human element in any situation that they may get off task too much and lose a sense of perspective. As always, after so much seriousness, let's end with a little bit of fun. This is again from that Quora group. And what they did in the Quora group is come to conclusions about how they thought each type would behave if they liked you. So, INFJs are masters at managing their outward emotions and concealing their true selves. It can sometimes be hard to tell whether they have a crush on you. They tend to be shy, and even though they might go out of their comfort zone to initiate or be around you, they'll inevitably become self-conscious of the act of putting themselves out there romantically. They worry about coming off as awkward and may retreat into nervousness when one of their assuredly premeditated moves, like a playful touch, wasn't as natural as they had planned. They'll want to take care of you, empathise with your problems and be supportive. They may also give you a book and say they know you really like it, even if you've never mentioned anything about your literary taste. Where to from here? I think you've picked up by now how important I think MBTI is to give you career direction, career satisfaction, just all around general happiness at work. So if you're interested, booking with an accredited practitioner. Don't go online and do one of those online courses. It's basically a waste of time. If you're going to do it, I encourage you to do the MBTI Step 2 Interpretive Report because that will give you additional information. It will help you uncover your preferences, but it will also help you understand where your behaviour is different to your preferences. And that is generally a result of life choices you've made or the circumstances of your life. And if I use an example from my life, I'm an absolute thinker. I'm the most analytical person you could probably ever meet. And yet when I do the MBTI Step 2 Interpretive Report, it will show up that quite often my behaviour is the behaviour of a feeler, which of course is the opposite of a thinker. And what I've concluded is that it's because I was brought up a very strong Catholic and so from a very early age, I was taught to think about other people and to care about other people. I think the usefulness of MBTI goes beyond the career sphere. Uh, I use it in my personal life, and I can always remember the first time I went shopping with my husband, who's an ISTJ. I was shocked and, I must say, horrified at how methodical and detailed and, dare I say, tedious his approach was to doing the supermarket shopping. But because I understand MBTI, I didn't judge him. I thought, well, okay, that's typical for a sensing person. There's nothing wrong with it. I just make sure I don't go shopping with him. I might meet him for coffee afterwards. I think in life it can be so valuable not just to understand yourself, but I think MBTI allows you to understand others and to respect them, and I think that's just wonderful. It's a wonderful tool. Again, as always, if you're interested, you'll find information on the website. If you like this podcast, I'd love it if you left a message or if you shared it or if you liked it. And I'd like to finish again, as always, with the hashtag, my hashtag, which I think is a wonderful hashtag. Why not be happy at work? Mm-hmm.